this is the Howie RevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm a senior RevOps consultant at GoNimbly. Aligning your go-to-market teams and the tech behind them is easier said than done. And in this podcast, we talk about how we get there. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Howie RevOps Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, and today we're talking about how to get started with RevOps forecasting, and we're joined by Stefan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm happy to, Adam. I'm Stefan. Today, I'm a CMO and co-founder of a company called Dream Data. We're one of those classic venture funded companies that either grows really fast and becomes a really large company or otherwise end up in trouble at some point. And related to what we're to talk about today, you could say in many ways, we are a B2B go-to-market data warehouse. And that means that we basically help our customers collect all the data that touches their customer accounts mm-hmm. and then map it into a nice clean data model that you can do all sorts of ops exercises with determining how, where the journey starts or what's the best marketing channel or what's the best salesperson to mm-hmm. doing forecasting and understanding customer journeys and such things. That makes a lot of sense. And I noticed when we were initially talking about doing a podcast episode, you were very responsive and you're very eager to get on here. So what makes you so <laughs> passionate about this topic? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've felt this pain so intensely myself that now that mm-hmm. we actually have something we consider a valid solution to this problem, then we, are, we really want to make the message travel as far as we can. And given what you guys do, I think it's a pretty good fit. Definitely. And to kind of get started into things, I've noticed that it's hard for companies that are scaling to start thinking about forecasting because they often have that initial success and a lot of their decisions are based on gut and even forecasting. So does this match what you're seeing in the SaaS space as well? Good question. I think initially you have people who just move fast and they should and not care too much about planning because they need to like just make some money. But as you mature, obviously it's good to get a bit more predictability into your actions. I think Mm -hmm. what a lot of companies have a fairly good understanding of is um, what takes place from when the lead hits their CRM system. Yeah. Then, Then there's a record of time from when they entered here and then hopefully money comes out on the other sides uh, a few months later or something like that. Yeah. But what I think they should be paying attention to, and when we speak forecasting, is to that the classic reverse engineering size where you say, if we need one deal, how many sales qualified leads do we need to witness? How many marketing qualified leads do we need to produce enough sales qualified leads? And how many just, let's call them random leads, do we need to have X amount of marketing qualified leads. Mm-hmm. And then the, the exercise needs to be carried out. So you actually also start thinking about how long does this lead stay in each stage? Mm. Because it's not, it's not just, just not happening. In B2B, nothing comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it takes a lot yeah. of time and a lot of work and being on a lot of podcasts, et cetera, before they, <laughs> that people start, start converting. So they should pay a lot of attention to the math piece. Like how many Mm -hmm. leads, MQLs, SQLs do we need to produce one deal? But also how long does it take in each stage? Because when they start doing their forecasting for next year, they need this information because before you have a lead, there's a 
some sort of attraction activity, whether that's an outbound motion or an inbound marketing motion or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It actually needs to take place quite a long time before they actually need that, let's say, that sales qualified lead. Yeah, I'm definitely with you there. And I'm not scared to admit when I first started thinking about how do you forecast? Because to your point, we are really good at understanding like how that how those leads initially get in our system. We're good at seeing how many of those leads convert to an opportunity. It is challenging for folks that are growing in their career to think, well, how do I then get some predictability out of that? And how do I go deeper in the funnel and bring all that together? I think yeah. to your point, set reverse engineering piece. So it's saying, okay, version one is we close this amount of deals. How many SQLs, how many MQLs does that take? And I really like that you talked about velocity because that's a thing that we see a lot of people skip over is how long did that take? So not how, not just how many does that take, but how long does yeah. that take? So I definitely agree with you there. And also even per like entry channel, there's different speeds as well. So if you get them from paid marketing has a certain speed. Organic search has another speed. Organic social has another speed. Outbound has another speed. So if you have to get to a hundred percent, this channel takes 20%, this channel takes 20%, but they don't move equally fast. But there's a lot of complexity in trying to get to that nirvana of ops where you kind of are predictable in any kind of outcome that you're uh, producing. Yeah. And do you have any tips on how to pull off some of the forecasting if you have a limited team size or limited tech stack? I would say if you're not using a CRM system today, then call go well, limply and get them to set up a CRM system best. No, people just need spreadsheets. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, good luck. No, so I've been like, I would, I would find it hard to do any kind of predictability or forecasting or anything if you don't control your accounts in a CRM system where there's some sort of pipeline structure where with definitions of when does an account move from each stage. So I would I'd definitely start there before anything else. Yeah, definitions are great because I think especially as we see teams scale, yeah. you know, sure, when you're really small, everyone's kind of on the same page. Everyone kind of agrees on what the stages are and what are the requirements to go in and out of a stage. But as you grow, as your product changes, as the market changes, it's yeah. really easy to get off track there. Absolutely. So I think like making the whole company aware about what makes up the definitions of what is, what can you put in each stage, it helps increasing on the predictability yeah. of the forecast. So for example, we have our SQLs is our sales pipeline, and you can only put something in the sales pipeline if you've filled out the MedPick model, which is one of these sales qualification mm. frameworks. And if they actually have talked with the customers about these things, we typically are able to win the deal around within 30 days or something like that. And these thresholds you can set up for every pipeline that you have to fill out certain things because we actually have some certain good degree of predictability to it. Definitely. And is the medic framework in your system? Do you track that in the system? Yeah. Or is that like a separate documentation? We've created it in in HubSpot with a deal that you input all of these things as you have several of these qualification meetings with the the customers. I think that's really key to sticking to something like that because 
frameworks are exciting and I've seen so many companies be like, we saw this framework, we need to do it. It makes so much sense. Yeah. But if it's not really in the system and integrated in that way, it's tough to make that philosophy or that framework sticky in your organization. Yeah. And I think it's important that you phrase it as a, actually, this is something that is helping you and not an annoying duty that you have to do. <laughs> yeah. It should be like phrased like, Hey, salespeople, if you want to make more money, make sure you actually cover these questions because yeah. at the end of the day, that's going to make you win a better percentage of your deals rather than, yeah. oh, this is this annoying task where you have to fill yeah. in, okay, what is the metric we're trying to improve? Yeah. And I think a really good way to get something like that off the ground, because I agree people are busy and they're like, great. Now I have one more thing to think about is if we're talking about salespeople, it could be any go-to-market team. Yeah. Take some of the folks that you know are probably more a little bit open-minded about things, create a mini cohort, have them do the medic <laughs> framework, and then look at the data and say, how did this affect deal velocity? How did it, how did it affect those things? And then it's yeah. a little bit easier to have a case versus this is my idea. Let's go ahead and just make everybody do four extra steps. So I want to get into this really awesome B2B metric support that you folks created. And I'm wondering what was the report, uh, if you could summarize it for folks. And I really want to know what surprised you, because there's a few things that surprised me on the report. Yeah. So just to highlight what it was, before the summer, we analyzed, I can't remember if it was like 400 of our customers or something like that, and their average customer journeys. Mm -hmm. So we aggregated how long does it take from first touch to, and these are all B2B companies, and most of them are SaaS companies as well. So it's a, it's very similar companies and we analyzed all sorts of parts of their customer journeys. There's three things that really stuck with me or like metrics I remember. One thing is that the average journey amongst all these hundreds of accounts was 192 days hmm. from the first touch on an account until you win an account. So for all customers it, in average, it's more than six months between you have the first session with an account until you win the account. And that just says so much about how long and complex B2B is. Mm -hmm. Then in average, they had 32 sessions, which means visits on websites, meetings, phone calls, etc. And then the last component, which I still remember was that the one deals in average had more than two people involved in the deals. So it's all these kind of metrics here really nicely describes why you can't use a thing like Google Analytics <laughs> to understand what's going on because it's like when you say these things, it just falls completely apart because it's mm, a lot of time. It's a lot of sessions. It's a lot of people. And all these people also own multiple devices themselves. So mm -hmm. you're looking at a very complex customer journey and Google Analytics, for example, just have no clue what's going on. Yeah. If I'm being a little bit hard on the CRM system, stay also don't have any clue about what's going on. And this is what we tried to highlight with these benchmarks. And I think maybe particularly interesting here is also that out of that full customer journey of 192 days, the unidentified time, which you could call the research phase, tended to be like equally as long as the identified time in the CRM mm. or even longer than the time in the CRM. So when your customers reply you how long our customer journeys, they typically reply you from the time they entered the CRM system, but the journeys are actually twice as long as that. And that matters when we speak about forecasting, it matters a lot. So if you think the journey is 90 days, but the truth is actually 190 days, 
then that means a lot in terms of when you do your investments to generate the demand you need to close sales pipeline later on. It also matters a lot when you're trying to understand, is my experiment working or not? Well, it depends on what you're trying to measure. You can measure deals that you win next month because it takes another five months before the deals are going to be won. And then maybe afterwards, then we can come into kind of the channels that people enter from also really impacted the speed. Um, I don't know if it was that one you were thinking about, Adam, but uh, I know the people at G2 was really pleased to to see the data coming out because the, when you get traffic from a review platform, it converts yeah. a lot faster than it converts from, let's say, organic LinkedIn clicks. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because you're really driving that trust piece home when you get to a review or where you're in the place of looking at a review. So that makes a lot of sense. I think some things that really stood out to me is it seemed like the average first touch to one deal seemed longest for B2B SaaS compared to B2B media and professional services companies. That seemed interesting to me because I think with SaaS, we think it's mostly products, right? It, it's software as a service. It's more clear of what you're buying. And so I think the assumption would be that those buyer's journeys would be longer, especially if the product's more expensive. It depends on what we're talking about here. Are we talking about a $5 product or a six-figure annual contract? I'm sure there's some variance there, but I think the assumption is with B2B SaaS that it's we invest a lot in the marketing and people should know what it is and it should be a quick sales cycle, <laughs> but it actually was quite longer than, like I said, B2B, B2B media and B2B commercial and professional yeah. services. So I should be the first to say that it, it's still not enough data to be like super scientifically valid, but it is hundreds of real accounts and real data. So let's say you had a 10x of this amount and you had like thousands of accounts, maybe it will be more correct, but I'm pretty bullish on that. It's still quite close to being correct. And I guess, I guess in SaaS also, we're just used to like constantly scanning a lot of different tools, just poking around before we actually move into that phase where we're actually considering purchasing products. Mm -hmm. I at least take out com competing products all the time and check out the tools that look nice, but I, I'm not converting before I like, I feel like, okay, today is today. I really need this, this tool. Yeah, for sure. And I have a question around just how the buyer's journey length or how this information might inform our attribution strategy. We get asked that question very often. What's the right attribution strategy? And it's not just because marketing wants more credit. It's just if you roll out attribution not in the best way or just there's different ways that you could roll out attribution that kind of pit sales and marketing against each other. So that tends to be a really challenging decision to make. Mm. And I'm wondering if you have any recommendations that are informed by the buyer's journey link. So I obviously have a lot of opinions on this topic here. I think overall, the topic of attribution should be something that anybody cares about in a company. And that's because attribution is about understanding how are we winning deals and mm -hmm. new customers. And let's go see if there's anything that is like repeatable here. Are there certain ads that we do that consistently produces high quality sales pipeline or even deals that we win? Then we should be running more of those ads or is marketing constantly doing ads that never end up in the sales pipeline, then they should be stopping to doing these things. So in my world, you should use this as an alignment tool and you work your way 
back from what drives one deals to sales pipelines and marketing qualified leads, et cetera, then you can use it. If you, there's something called a first touch attribution model, which is what is the first time yep. we see accounts. If you apply this only to when you get leads in, that is where you do it wrong because who cares the mm. first touch of a lead? We want to see the first touch of the accounts that are qualified sales pipeline or accounts you win. Because then you go out and do more of those marketing activities that produce quality pipeline and deals that you win. So in that sense, it should be a great alignment tool to say, let's look at all the deals we win, or let's look at the things that actually reach the sales pipeline. And let's go out and repeat these activities. And then let's stop doing these things that only reach, let's say, MQL stage. And it's never won by the salespeople. Does this kind of thinking make sense? Yeah. The way that I look at it is you have an x-axis and a y-axis. And so the x-axis is if we're thinking about first touch versus last touch or multi-touch, how valuable is that for a team? So for let's just say marketing and then a little bit of sales. If we look at our system and what we've captured or could capture for first touch or last touch, if we go with one of those, how valuable is that information going to inform what we do in the future to bring in more revenue. That usually helps us get to somewhat of a decision. And then the second piece, so the y-axis, is how realistic is capturing that data based on our current budget and resources. And so I mm. think this is where we make that decision. Do we want to go into a multi-touch territory or do we need to hang back in a first touch or a last touch to get things started and then have a really good story to tell around, hey, we were able to gather these insights. We've increased pipeline value and velocity by this much, but we'd really like to go further. And then you have a better case for the organization to make investment into a more advanced multi-touch. I think that's really uh, sound advice because all depending <laughs> on your like budget, there's different solutions out there. And I think if you're running super low budget, just asking the customers when they come to the sales meeting, where did you hear about us or put that form on your website is like a super low budget solution that it's better than not knowing at least. Yeah. But I want to go a little bit into when you say in first and last touch model, because essentially any attribution model, you can select first touch, last touch, linear, data-driven, etc. All of them are going to be misleading you if they're applied to, let's say only four or 5% of the complete journey. So it's actually. At any attribution customer journey discussion should start with, let's get all the data that we have available about our customers, any place mapped into a nice clean timeline. Then we can do the exercise afterwards of having another attribution model is somewhat just of an opinion. So if you only have 5% of the data and you apply whatever model, it's probably going to mislead you anyway. But if you have 100% of the journey, then it becomes really valuable looking at each section of this. Mm -hmm. And I think like your mod, you're thinking they're super right, Adam, with this X and Y axis, but it's not as simple as saying we just run a first or last touch model because it depends yeah. whether you actually have all the journeys represented with data or if you only have 5% of what's going on represented there. But besides that, I completely agree. And you should always think about what business are you in? And if yeah. you have a really small budget, let's use it where we get the most bang for the buck. It could be very easy to fall back on something because it's the way you've always done it. 
um, or you just, your system or your process isn't really set up to take that holistic view. So I definitely agree with you there. And I think it's important to, as you said, have those moments where you're looking at the whole journey and you're not just worried about what the system can track. I think that could really skew your viewpoint. And I'm guilty of this too, is like you just think through the system and not through your own <laughs> brain. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm 100% with you there. And also just hanging out in the buyer's journey topic, what strategic and business goals can we inform based on that? Because I'll just start off and say we're in a time period where budgets are small. People are feeling really stressed out to show performance. Yeah. And I know that the probably the first thing that's getting tossed out the window is this idea <laughs> that it could take more than a week to close out a deal or to get from first touch to close deals. So what are some business goals that we could use buyer length journey data to inform? I think it's a really good question. And I think what we want to be for any company, you can only use your money once. And we want to spend our money where we get the most effectiveness out of them. And to me, this is the question you should be uh, inspecting with these buyer journeys that, and I'm particularly then interested in when we win deals, what are consistently present there? They would be the last things we skip because those are the activities that make us, makes us money. However, we have all these other journeys that only reach, let's say, marketing qualified lead stage. Hmm. What are the things we're doing here? Ads, when the BDRs, uh, who knows, display ads, conferences, etc. <laughs> There's many ways to do bad performing stuff. So <laughs> overall, we can only spend our money one time. And we need to understand when we win deals or create sales qualified pipeline, those are the activities that we should do, be doing more of. And that there's all of us do stuff that at the end of the day doesn't produce revenue. And we should be critical about these things, particularly in these times where we probably be pressured a little bit more on explaining why we do things. And then you can say in these times, the salespeople have an, a little bit an easier time because they are the ones that brings in these signed contracts. So mm -hmm. it's easier to like keep those guys safe or girls. And then it may be a short term. It doesn't hurt as much to kill marketing because if it takes six months before we need these, or these deals are going to be one, then you don't feel that you're actually like cutting your arm or like cutting your leg off when you cut the marketing budget. And I yeah. think this is like a constant discussion for CFOs. Kind of how much do we dare invest in marketing and how much is going to hurt us <laughs> when we stop doing so? Yeah. And I think this is where we as marketers, we should be able to proactively explain the organization. We are doing X, Y, C because that means X, Y, C down the line. And if we cannot explain how our activities connect to revenue, then it's, we cannot blame the CFO for cutting our budgets. If, if we are not ourselves are not able to explain why, why are we spending all this money that we're spending? Yeah. And I, I want to hear a little bit more about this proactively explaining the impact on revenue because it's a priority that's easy to kind of all downward. Yeah, I really think this is this is one of my one of the cases of marketing that I care extra much about is that I think you should be doing marketing to produce revenue. Yeah. If you're not producing revenue with your marketing, then you're at least in a territory where it's easy to waste your own time and easy to waste your company's money. So 
And I've just seen it myself. When you do marketing that tangibly impacts revenue, then the whole mm-hmm. company grows and you get promoted and you become a hero and so forth. So you want to have an, a good idea about, as I was a kid, I was playing a lot of computer and some games had cheat codes. So you can type <laughs> in this cheat code and then suddenly things worked a lot easier. And then I think it's this attribution for me kind of becomes a little bit the same mm-hmm. thing for the marketer. Be able to prove I do X, Y, C, and then we get money out on the other side. And so at least it starts with you building up a narrative of we do these things, this leads to these things, and then we get money. And then you want to go as close to real revenue as you can with your explanation. But sometimes you need to set up proxy metrics that could be, for example, X amount of demo calls booked on the website coming from marketing sources, mm-hmm. because then typically the salespeople would know if we get X amount of demo calls, we produce X amount of deals two months later or something like that. Yeah. And I think when you ask for a marketing budget, you should be able to go in and say, you give me this money, you'll get this out of it at the end of the six month circle. Of course, we never know for sure, but we need to think through. Is this realistic or is it optimistic or is it pessimistic or what are we looking at? Yeah. And also if marketing is expected to come up with 50% of the sales needs, well, does that correspond to the budget you've been given or not? Absolutely. If, if it doesn't, you're set up to completely fail. So there's a lot of, the math needs to make sense and need to deal with it proactively. Otherwise your company ends up missing out on uh, missing the budget. That's some really helpful tips. I definitely agree that you need to be able to articulate that before asking for more budget. And I love that you chose to focus on demo meetings as an example, because especially if we're talking about longer buyer journey links, it's harder to pull or just to really understand if if you're not really tracking a lot right now, let's say on opportunities and sourcing from marketing, it's a little bit easier to start with the meeting part of it. Meetings tend to happen a lot more often and quicker than open or closed opportunity. So it's easier to use that piece of your process to create those forecasting and calculations for recommending a certain budget for the marketing team. I completely agree, Adam, and I think also to it, to some extent, there's also a limit to how far down the pipeline you can hold marketing responsible. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think this is also good to have something that has a quicker feedback loop. So if we are to wait from first touch to deal being one, we cannot correct our course if we have to wait this long. So we have to, maybe it only takes from the click on an ad to the demo being booked, if it only takes 20 days. That feedback loop is a lot faster and we can see if our actions are working or not. And then you should be like meticulously looking at every demo booking that comes in. Does this look like our normal ideal customer profile? Is this yeah. somebody sales is going to be happy to have a call with? And if all the leads that are coming in looks like somebody who's going to make sales miserable, then you should probably go back and look, look at what is tactics we're running right now. How can we correct this course and maybe get to more sales acceptable leads. Absolutely. Well, to wrap things up, so, you know, we have an attribution model, we have average customer journey link. What are some other areas that we look into to feel more confident about our forecasting? Good question. I think the essential thing is that anybody involved in go-to-market teams needs to know 
the length of the customer journey and also mm -hmm. the length of each stage, then I think you're in, you've brought your organization in a good place. And then mm -hmm. on top of this, I would layer an understanding for everybody that what our ideal customer profile is. So a company-wide yes. alignment about it. So marketing works on attracting this profile. Sales only talk or only spend their time on this profile. And the product department only builds products for this profile. So you get everybody pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. Then I think the whole kind of forecasting and predictability of how your company performs will get easier. Narrowing down that ICP is really critical because... There's a lot of the narrative, like we're talking about, that you could tell around improving the experience and the journey length or just or conversion of your ICP versus just everything in your system. It's a little bit less about boiling the ocean. And there's a lot of quick wins when you narrow down that ICP and you could show how they're moving through your pipeline. Yeah. Boiling the ocean. That's really good. You could do that if you're Coca-Cola or Disney or something yeah. like that. But yeah. the rest of us has to be a pr pretty specific right. about how we spend our money. Absolutely. So to wrap things up, in order to get started with forecasting, you need to pay attention to reverse engineering and yeah. you need to be able to say like, hey, how many MQLs, how many SQLs did it require to get to where we are this quarter, this year and do that math? And then you really want to align on your definitions and your ICP. You don't want to forget about velocity. How long did it take for yeah. this all to happen? And you also want to try to get all of the data possible around these journeys and make sure that you're always taking a step back and you're not filtering out things based on system limitations. And Stefan, I'm wondering if I missed anything in that summary with getting started with forecasting. I think that was a really, really, really solid summary, I would say. And if you're not there at all, I would just start looking at your org and think through are the things we're doing leaving digital traces behind? So yeah. get people to switch from using their phone to using a calling software. If you're doing like your <laughs> customer success <laughs> in a Gmail right now, get them into a software. So like going through the org, at least making sure you, you wire the organization to leave traces behind of their behavior. And then mm. as you get that data, place, then you can start looking at that forecasting afterwards. But I think it was a pretty good summary you did there, Adam. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I was really happy to talk. <laughs> <laughs>